Welcome back to Venture Studio. In this week's episode, we welcome Stephanie Palmieri of SoftTech VC, who's calling into the studio from the Bay Area. Dave and Steph discuss SoftTech's growth as a micro VC, how crowded the competitive landscape really is for seed stage founders, and the case for having a West Coast investor on your cap table. As always, I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you like what you've been hearing, please rate and review the show on iTunes. You can also find us on Twitter at Venture Studio. At SoftTech, Steph has led investments in Poshmark, True & Co., Clever, Handshake, Grovo, Panorama Education, Lantern, and Class Dojo. She is currently on the board of Chariot, Edgesense, Envoy, Fatherly, and Spoon University. She also led the firm's investment in Niche, which was acquired by Twitter. One of SoftTech VC's most notable investments to date is Fitbit, which went public in June of 2015 with a valuation of about $4.1 billion. SoftTech's founder, Jeff Clavier, has also been a guest on Venture Studio. You can find his episode and all of our other episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Now, without further ado, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Steph Palmieri. In the office, baby. Steph, it's great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for doing this. You know, I know you from back in the day in Columbia Business School. You've been a VC now for like four or five years. Yep. Tell everyone how you got into VC in the first place. I love that story. Uh, well, the short backstory is I, while I was in business school, I was targeting getting into venture. So I, I worked at a seed fund in New York called NYC Seed. I helped them run their first accelerator program. And then I was working at a, a whiny commerce startup in, in, in New York called Lot 18, which was actually started by another Columbia alum, Philip James. And um, I had the opportunity to stay there, and I was excited about what, what they were doing, but I, I had this itch to go to the West Coast. I was also interviewing with some firms on the East Coast, and I finally said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to just show everyone that this East Coast girl that's lived in New York City for 10 years is actually serious about it. So I threw all my stuff in storage. I packed four suitcases. I left two in New York at a friend's house. I took two with me, and I officially moved to San Francisco. I was sleeping on a classmate's floor, and I started leveraging my limited West Coast network, which was a handful of alumni and friends that had moved out there over the years. And I think the one advantage I had in doing that was the West Coast folks that I knew didn't get pinged a lot from East Coast people. So I stood out, I guess, in that way. Anyway, I, I got connected to one of SoftTech's LPs, who Hans Wilden from Industry Ventures. He's an LP in a lot of great micro VC funds. And sat down with Hans, and Hans was like, here's a bunch of people that I know are raising funds or have raised funds. They have money, and you should talk to these people. And I emailed the group of people. Hans said, use my name. And everybody else writes back and says, you know, we're not hiring, which is kind of the typical party line right. investor, and that's right. fine. And you kind of can tell, like, okay, they're not hiring. They don't even want to sit down and engage, but that's cool. And I actually know a lot of those people really well now. Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the reality is they weren't hiring. They weren't hiring. They, had, right. they still haven't added anyone right. to their teams. So there's some truth to that, too. Um, Jeff also told me he wasn't hiring, but Jeff wrote me this really thoughtful response, which said, you know, do venture later in life. I had written him a five-line email that kind of gave a tiny bit of background, and I think saying that I was a recent MBA made him think I was a lot younger than I was, and I hadn't had the kind of 
background I had leading up to business school. Anyhow, I really appreciated the response. So I planned to write him back and say, hey, this is awesome. I'd like to meet you anyway. I'm actually really interested in working at startups. You know I'm at Lot 18. I knew he knew Lot 18. Right. And he actually said, go work at Lot 18. <laughs> it's a big, he's a big wine guy. So he, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so he, he was very familiar with Lot 18 at the time. And uh, so needless to say, I, uh, I wrote him back. But in the interim, he, uh, he published the post. Uh, or he published his email back to me as this like advice for MBAs who want to get into venture. Hmm. He didn't use my name, but he used my gender. And so um, people knew it was me. Right. And I was just, <laughs> I was shocked. I was like, who is this guy? Yeah. And like all of a sudden, all these people are pinging me. And I'm like, are, is this you? So needless to say, I write him back. I say, I, I'd love to meet you. If our paths cross, like I'm sure we'll meet at some point. But, you know, if you're, if you're open, I'm going to be living in California. And I'd just love to get your perspective on the lay of the land. So we sat down for 30 minutes um, in his office. I walked in and he said, uh, I'm here to convince you to not work in venture. Hmm. And I said, well, you can try. I'm pretty stubborn. I'm going to try for at least a few more months, but let's talk about what I would do at a startup and what startups might be a good fit for me. Right. And so we had a great conversation, and a couple days later, he said, well, I want you to come in and meet my partner, Charles. Charles uh, was a venture partner with Softech at the time, and he was also running a company, and he was very well networked out here. And my thought was, they're going to hook me up at a startup. They're, they, they're going to help me find a job at a startup. So I sat down with Charles, and that's what we talked about for an hour. And then he said, well, Jeff wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. So I stuck around and, and I go into Jeff's office and Jeff goes, well, you're not going to take my advice. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to work for me for the next eight weeks and you're going to prove that we need someone because there is no job right now and you're the right person. And maybe then I'll hire you. Wow. Can you start right now? So I started that afternoon. Uh, I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have a car. It was pretty crazy about four or five weeks in, he, he said, okay, we're going to make you full-time. What I think was interesting was, you know, I joined the firm at a time when we were in the midst of going from Jeff as a solo GP right. and a $15 million fund, which was really an experimental fund to see if this micro VC was a real thing, to a $55 million fund and a team. And the unique opportunity, I think, in that for me was he realized that I was mature enough to put in front of companies and to sit Sit in, sit in as a board observer and things like that. And then I would kind of learn the deal flow bit and everything else. Right. But also, you know, I was part of, I got to be part of a firm growing and growing up. So, you know, when I started, we had a little office in Palo Alto. Now we have, still have an office in Palo Alto, but we have a big space here in San Francisco. We take lead positions in companies. We take board seats in the deals we, you know, we lead. So it's a very it's become a very different firm over the four and a half five years I've been here. What a progression! Just so people know, what uh, fund number are you guys on, and how big is that fund? We're on Fund Four. It's an eighty-five million dollar fund, and we do about fifteen deals a year. And our average investment size is probably eight hundred k these days. And the companies are usually raising one and a half to two million dollars. So we're ownership focused. We want to own seven to 10% of a company when we make our first investment. And then I, you know, I always tell founders this, we don't lead series A's. We think it's a conflict to lead a series A deal. Oh yeah. Why is that? Well, we focus on seed. So when you focus on seed investing, you know, you're there to really help the company through that first phase. And if you have a lot of seed investments and then you selectively choose which one that you're going to put more money into as a lead investor, it sends a really strong signal to the rest of the market that 
I know some inside information you don't know, and I chose to double down on this company. So we um, we maintain we like to maintain our pro rata and continue the ownership stake that we buy in the seed round in the A, um, ideally the B. And then at that point, you know, it, it may change because a you know a limited fund has only limited funds to continue to invest. Um, there's other vehicles in which you can do that as well. But the reality is, if we were leading a Series A, we would be sending a really strong signal to the market. Don't. Got you, got you. And you yourself, you're based in the Valley, but you're out in New York a whole bunch. What are you focused on these days? What kind of deals are you looking at? Yeah, so I do, um, I, I'm, kind of, I'm a generalist, but I do a lot of our consumer at SoftTech, especially since we brought uh, my colleague Andy on board. He's a, a very experienced SaaS guy, so he handles the SaaS world. I do a lot of our consumer marketplaces. I've also been doing a number of deals in the media space. Both of my companies in the media space are in New York. Yes, I know that. We're in, we're in Spoon together. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. And I think, are you on the board of Spoon? I'm on the board of Spoon, and I'm on the board of Fatherly, ah, So, okay. which which you have two kids, right? Right, right. You should write, you sh- I should get you to write a guest post on Fatherly. I, I, I'd love to. I, I don't know if I can p- compete with uh, Galifianakis and all these funny people. I've, yeah, I've checked out the site. There's a handful of celebs that, uh, that get quite quite a big following when they write for these guys, but... But no, no, it's uh, it's cool. We always, they bring lots of experts in to talk about all sorts of stuff on that one. Oh, I have a lot to share. And so you're you're stepping right into media and content. A lot of people historically have stayed away from it, but it's kind of coming back now. It is. Why are you confident see, to go into that space? Let me tell you maybe why these two deals were um, interesting to us. So historically, we don't do a ton of media at SoftTech, but we um, we were in Bleacher Report, which sold to Turner couple of years ago and that was a really interesting company because it took the it, so for those for your audience that's not familiar with Bleacher Bleacher is a, a, a network of uh, sports contributors and very much like many other categories that are lifestyle interests you have this kind of long tail of content where it doesn't necessarily make sense to have a reporter on the ground in a small town in the middle of Iowa called covering a little league game right but there's someone who's attending that little league game that wants to write about it, and there's a small audience that wants to read about it. And so what Bleacher did is they created this distributed network of sports writers, most of whom were not paid. They were doing it for the love of the sport and the love of writing and, and getting an audience and having a broader audience than they would build on their own. And Bleacher would syndicate that content. Really interesting model. Still, still exists today and, and, and very much, I think, a growing business. Um, but something that we at Subject, you know, learned a lot through that experience, and we saw that there are these different ways that don't necessarily involve a really heavy structure or an editorial staff. So I met Spoon University uh, on a trip to New York a couple months ago. Right. Heard about them first through one of another angel investor, Joanne Wilson. Oh yeah. But then I saw them pitch a TechStars demo day, and I uh, went up to Mackenzie afterwards and I said, I, "I we have we have to sit down and meet because this is this is Bleacher Report." But even, I think, way more scalable and way more interesting. It, it, so the way that Spoon works is it's a, it's a series of chapters on college campuses today. And it's students that are organizing and writing about food. They're creating videos. They're taking photos. And interest in food for millennials and younger is just is peaking is now, right? I mean, if you look at the photos on Instagram, you, you know there's something there. And then again, that ability to create really short form, informative, and engaging content in like a BuzzFeed-like way. 
So what I loved about Spoon was the thoughtfulness in providing a structure and a training for these students to become better writers, to learn how to grow their own audience. Right. And again, you know, I look at this as this is going to be a great thing on these kids' resumes. Right. As the chapter model, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a real leadership team and running a micro business within a college. And so, um, so now, you know, this, this company started at Northwestern's campus with one chapter as a print publication. Right. And now it's, I think, 100 plus campuses. I won't say that, I don't know if the numbers are public and how many uniques they're doing, but it's really strong. Yeah, I saw that update. It's pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, it. yeah, it's good, right? <laughs> and then and they're getting a tremendous amount of interest from brands, and so brands want to reach this audience. They know that this audience is not going to be watching the Food Network. They know this audience is used to consuming micro content, and that content has to feel native to the way in which they're consuming their content. So. They're used to something like a BuzzFeed or an Instagram. That content has to feel natural. And so I think Spoon has a lot of cool prospects from that perspective. That's so great. for me, like this was like the model is totally different. It's very scalable. It's going after a huge lifestyle trend. So very interesting. Yeah, that was impressive. I saw you at Demo Day and, yeah. and Mackenzie was presenting and – I don't know if you'd been in touch with her or whatever, but you, did you guys just connect after demo day and you ended I, up leading right away? And I, I walked up to her with my business card afterwards. I knew who she was and I walked up to her afterwards. When I go to demo days, I actually don't like going up to the companies at demo day. There's just too many people around. It's oh, hard yeah. to go through the sea of people and, and founders are distracted by everybody. So I walked up to her. I gave her my card. I said, it's a great presentation. I'm flying out on Sunday morning. It was Friday. I was like, I'm fully booked all day. I'm pretty sure you're jammed up all day. But I would love to meet you on Saturday morning if you have any time to meet. You know, we're, we were investors in Bleacher Report. I know, I, I see what you're doing. I think it's awesome. And I just had heard great things about you from Joanne. And I was like, here's my contact info. I got hers. We exchanged emails. We met for coffee at like 10 a.m. the next day. And so... I think when you I think when you see a company that you're interested in and and then we had a great first meeting. That's awesome. You just have to move with conviction. Right. She she and Sarah are just really impressive founders and they have a big vision and it's just been it's been exciting working with them for the last couple of months on where they're taking it. That's tremendous. That's tremendous. I love I love the way you made that happen uh, so, so quickly and established that connection. Let me ask you this. We've talked about it a little bit. You're on the West Coast but you're out here a bunch. You kind of bring a fairly unique point of view to the situation because you have more of an or orchestral view of what's going on. You know more of the competitive landscape. What would you, you know, what are your observations having been sort of bi-coastal for the last four years? Yeah, I always, I aspire to be really bi-coastal one day. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I kind of fake the bi-coastalness right now. I think the big thing that hit me when I moved to Silicon Valley was the sheer size and magnitude of, of what this is. New York, the New York ecosystem is very, it's small yeah. and it's very well connected and plugged in and it's fairly insular as is Silicon Valley, but it's small and it doesn't have the history of returns and the history of mentorship and leadership that you find out here. Uh, in the Valley, you just have, you have decades upon decades of right. innovation and you have companies that are built on top of previously large companies. And, and I think that is often overlooked. 
New York has had a handful of strong exits, right. but they haven't had their they haven't had their tons of breakout winners yet. Right. And and I'm not sure that New York will ever have that in the sense that this is what Silicon Valley is. Silicon Valley is about technology. Yeah. And the thing that I love about New York and the thing that I miss about New York is that New York is not just about technology. New York is about finance, fashion. New York is about media. So it's really cool when you can build businesses that support the other industries in New York. Right. I find that it's great in the New York ecosystem, but you have to recognize that for every one company being built in New York, there's probably five companies out in the Valley that are trying to do the same thing. It doesn't mean the company in the Valley is going to win, but it does mean that there's a, there, there needs to be, I think, a bigger awareness on behalf of New York companies of what's going on out here. The other piece that I think is relevant for founders to think about in particular is where's the money going to come from? In the seed stage, there's capital in both places. There's a surplus of capital. I think there's probably more great micro VC funds on the West Coast than the East Coast. Again, it's just a, it's a numbers game. Right. And there's lots and lots of seed deals out there. So I think any company raising on the East Coast should consider looking at the West Coast. But the reality is if you come down to Series A's and Series B's and Series C's, the majority of that capital is locked up out here. And so now you find yourself as a founder who's raised a great series seed from a great set of New York-based investors. And they're either not a great fit for the New York Series A firms or the New York Series A firms have a conflicting investment. Mm. So now what do you do? You now have to raise from the West Coast. Well, you never made that trip out there. You don't have any relationships out there. And your investors may or may not have strong relationships out there. So now you're really starting from scratch, and you also don't have a good sense of what deals these investors are looking at. Right. Because, you know, you're not the only mental health company out there raising. Mm -hmm. Chances are firms out here have seen 10 other ones. You might be the best one, but you don't even have that perspective of what they're looking at. So that presents itself to be a bit of a problem. And I think the other side to that is if you look at acquisition. So now if you think about who are the big buyers. Right. You've got Google, you've got Facebook, you have Yahoo, right? You have Salesforce. The big meaty folks are out here. Right. Sure, you can be acquired and be the New York branch of one of those companies. It's possible. But again, you're not on the ground talking to the M&A folks and building that relationship as easily because you're just not there. Right. So what I think is advisable is if you can build a great company in New York and it makes sense for you and your team, you should do it. But you should really think strongly about at least having some balance of East and West Coast money so that you get that second perspective and you have a second home for when you do need to leverage that network. That makes a lot of sense. It seems like it works on two levels. One, which we see on the very early stage, folks coming out of the university and the incubators, a lot of them don't have sort of that orchestral view of what the competitive landscape is really like. You've come into some of our labs and things like that, and you, you've pointed that out to me, that we need to cultivate more awareness of what's out there so you know what you're getting into. But on the second level that you were just talking about, how do CEOs and founding teams start cultivating ties out in the West Coast? How do you do that? I think, I think actually the best way is to get a West Coast firm into your seed round. West Coast firm are a couple of West Coast angels. Because what you don't want to do is come out and blindly go to a bunch of like big events where you're just going to be another random person attending something. 
So first off, I make an effort to spend time when I go back to New York with the seed investors in New York, and I like doing deals with them. And if I'm doing a, a deal in New York, I like to have a local investor in my deal. I want to make sure there's someone who's down the street when something happens, even if I'm the lead, so that you've got a local person you can go grab coffee with, because I, I can't do that for you in the way I can with a, a company that's around the block from my office. But I think, I think it is about involving West Coast investors earlier. And then what happens once you do that? You start to get invited to some of the more intimate you know, events that happen. So, you know, for example, one thing we do is we hold a CEO summit each year exclusively for soft tech founders. So this year we had it in Santa Cruz. Last year it was in Sonoma. And we had about 80 or 100 founders attending. We've invested in 175 companies to date over the 11 years soft tech's been around. So we have a lot of CEOs and a lot of founders. Incredible network. So, yeah, so it's cool. And so, you know, we have a bunch of our founders actually speak at the event. In the morning, it's a bunch of talks. You know, we had Jeff Fernandez from Provo. Actually, Mike Rothman, the founder of Fatherly, spoke for the first time. Manish Chandra from Poshmark. We have just great people that come up and talk about their experiences, building sales teams, what it's like to raise a Series B, you know, all of that stuff. So first off, that kind of gives our founders access to a broader network, but especially for our East Coast founders, it gives them a chance to meet tons of peers on the West Coast, right? And then the best part is, I can step away. I don't have to be in the middle of that relationship. Now they know I can reach out to this person anytime. I can catch up with them when I'm on the other coast. So that's a, and that's a really helpful thing for, for both sides, right? One thing I do with my New York founders is I usually take my New York founders out to dinner as a group when I go back to New York. First off, again, it lets me kind of see more of them at once. But secondly, it helps build a smaller network within. And again, we kind of share who are they meeting with, who they have good meetings with out there. One thing I do is I try to keep my eye on the ears on the ground, not my eyes on the ground, but my mm-hmm. ground, right. about which uh, VCs are going to go spend time in New York City. Because once I hear that like a colleague is going to be go doing a New York trip, oh, great opportunity to meet one of my companies while you're there, especially when they're not raising, right? It's about getting to know a company beforehand so that when the time comes to make that decision, you're not jumping into marriage without going on a first date. Right, right. I love how you have it all mapped out. That's amazing advice also for founders that are listening to the show. Let me ask you one more question. The micro VC landscape right now, it's incredibly crowded. I mean, it's amazing, both on, on, in New York, on the West Coast. What are you seeing? What, what are your insights? Oh, my gosh. So five years ago when SoftTech was kind of getting, not getting started, but getting started as sort of a bigger micro VC fund, you probably on your fingers and toes could have counted the numbers of micro VCs. In fact, I don't think it would have covered more than like 15 digits. No. There's, I know, I think in the U.S. now we have 300 or so it's firms and counting. Yeah. It might, it might be up to 400 if you include our, our friends in Canada and some other firms that are focused a little bit more outside the U.S. That's an astronomical number. Yes. The thing that I think is really important for founders in, in talking to these folks is one, understanding the track record that these folks have as investors. Do they have a track record of investing in great companies and helping great companies get funded? Because one of the most important things that your seed investor will do for you is help you raise your next round of funding. So that's A, helping you figure out what metrics you need to be working towards, helping you potentially fill in gaps on your team. But again, making those all important intros to investors when the timing is right. Right. So if, you, if you're dealing with folks 
that have a big pocket of money that they're maybe able to tap into, but they don't have a network that they can prove that they can access to help you fundraise, that's probably not the best fit. It, and the track record, I should say, it doesn't have to come from that fund. It may have to come from previous, previous funds. Got it. The other challenge is fundraising risk for these guys. If this is a first fund, not to say it's easy, but it's fairly easy to put together a five to ten million dollar fund, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? You can you can raise that from high net worth individuals. You don't necessarily have to raise that from institutional investors right. like fund of funds and endowments and stuff like that. So, because of that, and and most of these firms have the aspiration, much like SoftTech, to go from smaller asset under management in the first fund to much larger assets under management, which means that you're now looking for people who can write anchor checks of a million, five million, ten million dollars. And so there's a risk for a lot of these folks that they won't be able to raise fund two and fund three. And so the question is, will they be around in the long run? Last year, I pulled together a bunch of data and actually looked at who had raised a first fund in whatever year and how much it was, who had raised a second fund. And what's very interesting is you've got a lot of people that have raised the first fund. At that time, they were probably hitting two years in. And if you assume the natural fund life cycle is probably about three years, it might be two, it might be four, you should be seeing a second fund being announced about three years after a first fund is announced, if you're not seeing that, that might be a sign that that investor actually doesn't have a lot of dry powder. Got it. Huge, huge insights for founders listening. You're the best. I thank you. We'll have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Steph. Be well. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? Hey everyone, Dave Lerner here. I hope you're liking the Venture Studio podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks. I appreciate the support as always.